0: In this episode, we talk with Hosna Jalil. Before the Taliban regained power in August 2021, Hosna was the first woman to serve as Deputy Interior Minister of Afghanistan, while she was still in her mid-twenties. She talks about her experience in a conservative, male-dominated society, her path into politics, and also about how the European Union and the West should deal with the Taliban regime. Dear Hosna, thank you for joining the EU Matters podcast. Uh, You were born in 1992 in uh, Ghazni in southeastern Afghanistan, and you grew up in what was then uh, Taliban-controlled Afghanistan up until 2001 uh, when uh, the United States and the Western allies decided that the Taliban should be uh, removed from power in Afghanistan following the terrorist attacks uh, of 9-11. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about your childhood, about your upbringing under that regime and what changed when uh, the West uh, intervened?
1: I think, first of all, the when I reminded my childhood, as a child, I didn't know any better. So I, I m- might have had a very um, low expectation in terms of what I wanted to do in life, but there was one thing that I badly wanted it. And I knew that I'm soon going to lose access to, and that was education. So I was studying in a community-based educational program, which was supported by UNICEF and CARE. Um, and at the same time, Swedish Committee and Norwegian Committee, there has been different phases supported by different organizations. I knew we've been, of course, hiding from the Taliban but the community-based educational program was until uh, sixth grade. So towards the end of 2000, I was going to be graduated from sixth grade because it was a fast-paced program where we used to learn two grades in one year. And I was going to be graduated from sixth grade, I think in 2001 or 2002, and I didn't know what's going to be next. So I do remember when um, I was having conversations with my mom Like, hey, mom, what's going to be next? I really want to continue. And she used to tell me that we are I'm going to send you to a neighboring country with one of the elders, retired elders in the family. And she had no idea who. And I wanted to, back then, I wanted to, I mean, as a child, I wanted to become a medical doctor because that was the only profession that had the minimum independency in terms of being able to go out. My mom was a medical doctor and she was the only woman who could go out of home. Um, or who could have a career, like not an ideal career, but um, at least have a had a career. So I was supposed to become a medical doctor and I used to brag about it to my friends in the neighborhood that I'm going to become a medical doctor. But then when we reached to a certain point where I was supposed to get into sixth grade and I was supposed to get graduated, um, I started panicking because there, there was a dream that was supposed to be shattered. And then 9-11 happened, um, the US and NATO countries decided to invade Afghanistan. In 2001, they entered Afghanistan. We had no idea, as a child, I had no idea what's happening. So my mom told me like, okay, the Western countries have invaded um, and they're going to overthrow the Taliban. And they had already overthrown the Taliban, I guess, back then. And then she's like, they might open school. And I think as a child, that was such a beautiful moment for me. I was like, what do you mean? The school next to, in our neighborhood, there was a girls' school in our neighborhood, which was dedicated to boys and girls were not allowed to go there. I was like, do you mean the girls' school in our neighborhood that I knew once it was a girls' school? She's like, maybe, yeah. I think as a child, I welcomed that invasion. Um, And I I still believe most of the times when you're talking about Afghanistan's invasion, I. I do believe that the term of welcomed invasion should be applied in in that invasion of 2001. Because there had been a huge number of people, population, including almost all the children who really wanted to go to school and they couldn't go to, um, who welcomed that invasion.
0: When you say it was a welcomed invasion, uh, would you say people today still think that or has the mood in, in, in Afghanistan changed? in the last those 20 years. Those who welcomed
1: years. the invasion uh, in 2002, I do believe that they still believe that it was a welcomed invasion. Those who had the experience of 1st those who had the first-hand experience of either going to school or having the freedom of working, which includes women, the freedom of speaking, the freedom of thinking, expressing themselves, I do believe that they all welcomed the invasion. And then another generation grew, which who does not remember the invasion at all, and they haven't had the first-hand experience of at some point in time being abandoned from all those very basic rights as human beings, and then experiencing another life. There was another generation where my two of my younger siblings, including that generation, is part of that generation, but they can clearly see the difference. We had seen the difference of Afghanistan before the invasion, Afghanistan after the invasion, and Afghanistan now, which is after withdrawal. I mean, nothing was perfect back then. It was the perfect example of imperfect uh, situation, but it was a situation that brought a lot of hope.
0: Would you say those 20 years, uh, when uh, the Taliban were out of power, have uh, helped Afghan society, especially girls and women, uh, to progress and to 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 learn something that, that would be useful in the future?
1: Absolutely. And I would label that as a very fast paced progress and with the, of course, with the facilitation, with the uh, support, the financial and the technical support of the international community, um, I would still give the credit to all those women and girls who have been waiting behind the closed doors. And the moment that the door opened for them, they all have been rushing. So that was a fast paced progress. And the credit, of course, goes to everybody who facilitated, everybody who donated, who supported, and all the women and girls who made a lot of efforts to get where they were in 2021. And look at the literacy rate, look at the number of uh, women who participated in higher education, in public services, in private sector, and many other sectors. In Afghanistan, we had a meaningful, and I really mean it when I say meaningful, meaningful participation of women, in the public services and civil services, which made 28 to 30% of the uh, public servants, the civil servants in Afghanistan. And that was something that we didn't have in the region. And that happened in just 20 years. And out of that 30%, 11% of those women have been decision makers. And I had worked with most of these women, their participation was absolutely meaningful and impactful.
0: To what extent will the Taliban be able to roll all of that back? Is it possible? Um, Do you fear they will be able to roll it back?
1: If the Taliban structure would remain the way it is right now, and it doesn't open up to include other opinions, to include other um, political groups, to include, I mean, to be an inclusive by all means, in terms of opinion, in terms of backgrounds, in terms of ideologies, I don't think Taliban would change its policy.
0: Now, you were one of the first uh, women who, who, or the first woman, actually, who became a a minister in in Afghanistan, a minister um, for women issues, and a deputy interior minister uh, back in, I think it was in 2018, if I'm correct. What made you look towards uh, the political world in, in Afghanistan? What made you want to be part of that?
1: I did my education. I was serving in the private sector. And at some point in time, I mean, we all have been complaining about the public services, corruption in the government, and government's inefficiencies in the private sector. So I really had a negative image of the government. I, of course, was happy for having a government rather than not having it, of course. But the reason that we had a lot of complaints in the private sector was because we really wanted the government to improve. And we kept fighting for anything that was relevant, anything that was helping us or creating an enabling environment for the private sector. And then in 2015, there was an opening in the president's office. And I remember that the president's office or the palace has never been an open employment opportunity for, for anybody. It was based on recommendations, based on political ties mainly. And I remember that there was an opening with which was supported by one of the um, independent uh, research organizations NGOs, because the pay the salaries were supposed to be paid by them, so that's why they have been part of the recruitment the NGO was part of the recruitment they had created an announcement, and I believe that yes it's a short term contract it's a short term opportunity but And I needed, I wanted that short-term opportunity because I didn't uh, want to commit to a long-term mission in the government. Uh, For me, I I felt like, first of all, it's going to be the president's office, and I want to see what's really going on in the heart of politics of Afghanistan, right? And the second one was, for me, it was an opportunity because I, I was supposed to uh, have the opportunity to work with different government institutions. I could figure out why the governance uh, keeps disappointing people, keeps disappointing the private companies, the NGOs, and um, so on and so So for me, I think I did have questions and I went there for answers. Because some, sometimes when we have a very negative image of an institution, then we are more curious about it. So I, I did have that curiosity. I went there for a short-term contract. I did my job. I my contract was completed. I get, came back to the private sector, and then two years later, I was offered an opportunity to um, work on a much long in a, in a much long long longer-term position, which was a permanent position in the government. And that's how I, um, based on my previous experience, I decided to go into the government because that was when I, two years later, was when I felt like okay if well we have been on the complaining side and i did believe like okay um in order to change something the way we want we have to be part of it so that was the very um, um that was the, the major uh factor that made me decide to be part of the government um it was about fixing things that we keep complaining about
0: and did um, you manage to fix certain things or did you feel successful uh, at the end?
1: It wasn't a, a very clear path. There has been a, a tons of challenges, but yes, there has been things that we changed for good. There has been things that we really wanted to fix and we could fix. I can't say everything. I would say maybe two out of 10 things that we ideally wanted to change. But I, I also believe that uh, being part of really big institutions particularly when I went to Ministry of Interior, that was a whole different world. I did believe that there are things that I can change, maybe together as part of a team, together with a team, but there are things that I can leave as a legacy for others to change, but I can facilitate, I can pave the ground for that. And we did it. There has been the Ministry of Interior, for instance, as one of the organizations that I had worked that I entered in 2021, um, looking, only from my own portfolio's perspective. Compared to, to the ministry interior that I um, left in 2020, um, I entered in 2018 and I left in 2020. It was a whole different institution in just two years. And we have been a small team. I mean, I'm talking about my own portfolio. only, But even I could see in other portfolios, there has been a lot of changes in terms of the, um, systems that we developed in terms of the centers that we created to serve the public and in terms of the systems that we tried to i would say to um, mitigate the vulnerabilities of these systems in terms of corruption and it, it, it was a different system and even the ministry of interior that we decided to be part of or decided to join that bigger organization in 2018 was a whole different institution compared to the ministry of interior of Um, 2006, or 2005, or 2007. It was very different. I could clearly see, based on the institutional memory, I clearly see that there has been a progress in every single institution, Mm -hmm. be it Ministry of Mines, be it Ministry of Interior, be it Ministry of Women's Affairs.
0: Did you feel accepted as a woman, as a young woman? You were only 25, 26 at that time. Uh, Did you feel accepted? And were there threats from the Taliban, from others? Especially when I, you were working on corruption, uh, was it dangerous
1: well when I, when I went to Ministry of Mines, um, I was well accepted yes i I mean it's it's normal it's very normal. You take a man's deed, that's not acceptable because women's prisons have not normalized yet, but I think that was a package that we had already signed up for. So we knew what kind of challenges we would have to deal with, but what incentivized it as what motivated, as what gave us the morale was, we have to start it here. And some, I mean, the ones, our successors, female successors would have a much better time or a much um, less struggle in terms of the personal struggles on on their acceptance, on receiving the respect that they uh, deserve or, the respect and acceptance that would affect their productivity. So we had signed up for that, but Ministry of Interior, the reason that I I mentioned previously that it was a whole different world was because for me, I moved from a civilian institution to, a. even though Ministry of Interior shouldn't have been a military institution, but that was a military institution because the police itself was uh, somehow militarized. It wasn't civilian police. So yeah, I went there. I was not accepted by my own colleagues in the office that I was working. I was not accepted by the appointed secretary that was supposed to work for me. I was not, of course, I was not accepted by any uniformed uh, man around me. That was the biggest challenge that I had to deal with for the first uh, few months, of course. People didn't want to uh, share information with me, my colleagues, Uh, they didn't want to attend uh, my meetings. Of course, that's going to affect productivity. Uh, it, it, it was making me worried at some point in time. And, and I was concerned about the situation and I was taking action about it was because it was affecting my productivity and it was leaving me in a situation where, where I had no opportunity to prove myself. I was appointed there and I was the uh, gatekeeper for many other women to enter that institution. And if I would have failed, I wouldn't have failed as an individual, I would have failed on behalf of many other women. Um, So for me, it was a different challenge. It was a different mission because people, I mean, women used to look up at me. So the acceptance from my my own colleagues, particularly uniformed colleagues, that was the biggest challenge that I had to deal with. When it comes to Taliban threats, I think the threat wasn't something new because I was dealing with Taliban and warlords when I was working at the Ministry of Mines. Uh, The reason was because I was working on illegal mining, combating illegal mining and protection of mining sites. So I was dealing with the two of them on a daily basis because illegal mining was part of, was um, their main revenue sources. For the Taliban, it was the second uh, largest revenue source after narcotics. For warlords, it was one of the main revenue sources. So I was dealing with them. I was having uh, that threat. Yes, the level had gone up. Uh, but it wasn't something new and the corruption it was quite similar case because i was uh, working at the ministry of mines i was working at the president's office and i was working on uh, anti-corruption portfolios inside those institutions as well yes the level had increased because first the institution was big second the institution was more resourceful compared to any other institution that i had worked in it had um Hundreds of millions of dollars per year, the budget, and plus it was an institution with a very diverse portfolio. So corruption is not just the financial corruption. Corruption is also influencing decision makers in that institution to, I would say, to um, make decisions or take actions in in favors of uh, individuals or groups or organizations outside the institution. So. Uh, It was a bigger institution with a very diverse and powerful portfolio, but at the same time, it was a resourceful institution. So for me, I think those two challenges came after the challenge of being accepted in that institution and Hmm. being respected in that institution.
0: Uh, You mentioned the police uh, and the military. Um, For 20 years, various international organizations, the United Nations, the European Union, the Americans and many other Countries were on the ground in Afghanistan, were trying to build institutions, Afghan institutions, Afghan military to train the police, et cetera, et cetera. With hindsight, would you say they were successful even though the Taliban came back to power, or were they not successful? And if not, why not?
1: Let let me me, um, correct a phrase phrase that is constantly used after the collapse, and that is the word failure. In Afghanistan, first of all, neither the Afghan armed forces failed nor the international forces failed. I had worked with both of them. And considering that I have been particularly in 2020, where I was working on post-peace policing, on security sector reform, I knew, like, I had every data and information about their capabilities. Even if they wouldn't, even if the Afghan armed forces wouldn't have been able to win the war, they could hold the ground. It wasn't a military military failure neither again for the Afghan armed forces nor for the uh, international forces. It was a political decision. I won't even label that as a political failure. Yes, for the Afghan government, it was a political failure. But for the international um, governments, I mean, for the international community, it was more of a political decision even. I mean, it, it's up to international, to um, the partner governments or the, uh, international community or, or the Western governments who decided to withdraw from Afghanistan. It's up to, to them how they evaluate after two years. The withdrawal was that because the withdrawal itself was a political decision, not a military decision. Of course, it's up to them how they evaluated after two years. Was that a failure? Now, I mean, looking back at at the entire situation, or was that a decision that they're happy with? That I'm in no position to make a comment on that. But I would certainly. Um, rephrase that as a political decision rather than a failure. But when it comes to the engagement in Afghanistan in terms of uh, the police and the army capability building, training them, equipping them, advising them, providing technical assistance to them. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't again a perfect situation. There has been a lot that could, could could have been improved there. There had been a lot that could have been done differently, but it wasn't a failure. It was a 20 years old armed forces in a very tough and complex geopolitical context, but at the same time, they were given 20 years. So it's, the time frame really matters. If you look at the South Korean, I mean, South Korea even, I mean, how many years the US has had its forces deployed in South Korea and look at the number and look at when South Korea was efficient and self-sufficient in terms of a corruption-free government, but at the same time, um, a self-sufficient government. I mean, the timeline, I think, really matters.
0: Uh, You would argue then that Afghanistan wasn't a good way with all the usual setbacks, but it wasn't a good way towards self-sufficiency, as you call it, Uh, had had the forces not withdrawn.
1: The withdrawal at some point in time had to happen, Michael. Mm. That was something that the Afghan people was expecting. I mean, the withdrawal—it had to happen at some point in time. But how the withdrawal should have happened, when it should have happened—I think that really mattered. And the timeline given to Afghanistan, like twenty years, considering that the first ten or eleven years of the uh, U.S. and NATO's presence in Afghanistan wasn't really state building or institutional building, Michael. That was purely counterterrorism. So if if I would tell you that. Everything was built around countering terrorism, including the defense and and security institutions, including the forces, were created to counter terrorism only, I would say. And then it was only the second half of the um, U.S. and the NATO's uh, presence in Afghanistan where they paid more attention to institutional building and, and state building. So it was just, I wouldn't even consider that as a 20 years effort. I would consider that as a 10 years effort which I don't believe it was sufficient. Hmm. That's the, the timeline is the first thing. The second thing is, yes, the withdrawal should have happened at some point in time, but how it should have happened, I mean, could you expect a government to survive when its strategic partner that has been the backbone of its foundation or establishment post-2001 is bringing up the level of a group that is a pure mix of terrorism and insurgency in Afghanistan and together, jointly, everybody has fought with it for 20 years and all of a sudden they're bringing the level up to a political level where the US itself is negotiating with it in the absence of the government itself. Do you believe that that government would survive? I mean, for me, even in the public eye, yes, the public did have grievances. Yes, the public um, were not happy with it. Again, as, as I was not happy when I was in the private sector, as I was not happy when I was a student, of university, a student of a school, because I was demanding, of course, I could compare myself with anybody else that I could see on the internet. But here's the thing, a government where it was considered to have the back of the US, both financially and at the same time, politically, diplomatically, all of a sudden, is it's partner is is pulling the rug under its feet. Of course, it's going to collapse, even in the public eyes, it's going to lose legitimacy to a certain level in order to a certain level, to a great level. So for me, the, the how the withdrawal happened, that really mattered. And at the same time, when the withdrawal happened, that also mattered. It mm. could have been a much gradual withdrawal. From 2014, when the um, transition happened, the responsibility to fight the Taliban. When the transition happened, uh, the re- transition of responsibility happened in 2014, I think it was a great point in time where there could have been a gradual transition of responsibility in terms of everything else. And I couldn't see that in 2018, 2019, 2020, 2020 and 2021 happening in Afghanistan. Let me, let me give you a good example, Michael. I remember when I was coming to the US for a fellowship and I went to um, a military base where I had to do my biometrics. There had been officers from the army coming to the base to get the training on how to register ammunition in the system. Don't you think that's too late, Michael, to do that? I think that transition, that ownership had to happen before the collapse. I mean, we needed time, actually, to take this ownership, to work with these systems, uh, to request for technical assistance, and to uh, finally be in a position where we can say, like, hey, you know what, I need your minimum support now. I mean, I'm talking about two or one and a half months before the collapse. It should have been a gradual transition. It should have been a gradual withdrawal. And the withdrawal wasn't just the withdrawal of the troops. The withdrawal was politically withdrawing, financially withdrawing, diplomatically withdrawing somehow.
0: Do you understand the people in America like Joe Biden or in Europe, like many here who said we shouldn't get involved at all in state building, nation building in in faraway places? We should only defend our own interests. So they would argue we were there for counterterrorism after 9-11. But the moment uh, the problem of of the Al-Qaeda and the terrorists was resolved, we should have left Afghanistan again. Do you understand that argument or would you say that's not the right approach?
1: I don't feel that the argument is deep enough. Let's build some scenarios, Michael, together. The U.S. would have invaded Afghanistan, overthrowing the Taliban. What would have been overthrowing the Taliban just because Taliban was uh, sheltering Osama bin Laden and leaving Afghanistan? What was the legacy of the U.S. and Afghanistan? Another civil war, which was the case, right? Mm -hmm. Afghanistan transitioned to the Taliban, to the hands of the Taliban from a civil war period, right? And I do remember during the Taliban, um, the previous Taliban rule, where people used to say, yes, the Taliban or the worst regime maybe on the planet, but we had come from a civil war period in Afghanistan to the hands of the Taliban. We were not able to feed ourselves back during the civil war. We are not able to feed ourselves now. We were not having access to education then. We are not having access to education now. Nothing has changed. We didn't have any freedom. We didn't have anything. During civil war, and we don't have any um, thing during the Taliban's regime, but there's one thing that we have now. The power is in one hand, we at least know who is killing us and who is um, attacking us or launching RPGs on us. So the thing is when you have so many warring parties in, in, in a country fighting with each other and not knowing who's who, that's a chaos. Imagine, that's a chaos, right? And people were fed up with the civil war to an extent where they accepted Taliban's dictatorship and tyranny. So if the US would have, with that legacy, Afghanistan and then the people already having had that experience, if they would have, the, the US would have overthrown the Taliban and just leaving Afghanistan like that, the US would have been created another civil war in Afghanistan, would have been facilitated another civil war in Afghanistan, because then you could have all these uh, small armed groups fighting with each other again. That was the first thing. The second thing, okay, if we're talking about 10 years of counter-terrorism mission and then the other half of the US engagement in Afghanistan, which was state building and institution building, that they consider it's wasted and they shouldn't have been there. I still don't believe that would have been bringing any benefit in terms of political image and in terms of even serving their interests. The reason is because Okay, Osama bin Laden was killed in Pakistan, not Afghanistan. Let's mark this. I mean, this is something that no one is comfortable to um, to acknowledge. Osama bin Laden, for many many years after Taliban's overthrowing, I mean, after after Taliban's was were overthrown, was not in Afghanistan, right? I mean, this is something that I'm that I've I've read on the reports of not the Afghans, but of of the international um, community. Osama bin Laden was killed. Afghanistan was a state that was busy for 10 years with counterterrorism operations, that was when the Taliban was already emerging. 2010 was when the Taliban was already emerging. And when the Taliban, I don't say they came with a peace deal, but they definitely wanted to get into talks. That was when the U.S. rejected, right? And I'm talking before 2010. So there was an opportunity to negotiate with them, to talk to them. That was the the opportunity was rejected in 2010 when the Taliban were emerging and they had become quite strong and powerful again. If the U.S. would have left then, I do believe that the entire world would have blamed it. So the decision back then to stay in Afghanistan, to focus on institutional building so that Afghanistan would be self-sufficient enough to defend itself, to fight its own war, plus which back then it was labeled as an only insurgency, not terrorism. Plus at the same time, countering threats that could potentially rise from Afghanistan and could potentially, of course, um, be a threat to the West. Afghanistan would counter those threats within its own borders and Afghanistan would be able to, would be capable to do that. The main purpose was to build those capabilities in Afghanistan. And for good, I, I do believe that it was well worth it. But again I'm, I'm thinking of the timeline the timeline given was not mm. um um the right timeline Sufficient. or or the um feasible or the practical timeline that was given to um to the situation to mm. the um state building or making afghanistan self-sufficient it was the following that rushed, rushed.
0: With- withdrawal it was rushed uh, i think everybody will agree on that now we have a situation where the the taliban have been in power again for the last two years. What can be done and how do you assess uh, what, for example, the European Union has done? Uh, the European Union has kept uh, its presence in, in, in Afghanistan, in Kabul, though on a low-key level, but the European Union is still there uh, on the ground. How would you assess that action uh, that they have undertaken now in the last two years vis-a-vis the Taliban? And would you say they should stay there by all means? Would you say they should withdraw unless the Taliban are gone. And what do you make of the the last two years uh, with respect to Afghanistan? What's happening right now?
1: I think the European Union's decision to stay in Afghanistan, but at the same time not to give the Taliban the legitimacy in terms of the diplomatic relation, it has been a wise um, decision. The Taliban are not going to be gone without, of course, an internal uh, force plus the support of the external um, uh, actors. And when I'm talking the force, I don't mean the armed force uh, or another armed insurgency. I mean like the civil society, the women's movement. And plus that, of course, the armed forces is another uh, pressure uh, source on the Taliban. The Taliban are not going to be gone without without a Guinea force. If the EU would have left Afghanistan in 2021, or wouldn't have engaged with Afghanistan, not with the Taliban, because what the UN, what the US, the, the EU, not the UN, are what the EU is doing right now is engaging with Afghanistan but not engaging with the Taliban. That's how I could see it with the level that they are engaged in Afghanistan. Um, so, I'm, first of all, it's a wise; it has been a wise uh, decision. Second, if the US would have left then it would have been abandoning Afghanistan. If the EU, I'm sorry, my apologies. If the Mm -hmm. EU would have left, then uh, it would have been more like abandoning Afghanistan and Afghanistan is beyond the Taliban. I mean, there's a population out there where 68% of them are teenagers or youngsters or kids. Um, And we are all striving for for the population, for the Afghan people. I mean, most of us. So for the EU, I'm happy that they made the decision to stay in Afghanistan, but of course, at the same time, not uh, making Taliban hopeful about giving them the international legitimacy. And At the same time, as far as there would be the minimum engagement, that's when you can have the opportunity to talk.
0: When you say uh, low level engagement and opportunity to, to talk, is there a a path and uh, there was some un deputy secretary general recently who suggested that there could be a a, a deal in the making uh, to recognize the Taliban in exchange for concessions in exchange for uh, real uh, um, improvements especially for the situation of women in the country do you see that as a possibility or do you think there will never be a there can never be a deal with uh, with that, with that regime
1: I mean as an Afghan I would hate to see the Taliban regime being, I mean, to be recognized by the UN, but as far as are, the way they are right now, I mean, them being part of a government, that's absolutely acceptable. And that was acceptable even a long time ago, even when the Taliban used to be a terrorist and insurgency. I mean, we, were, we had the mentality to welcome them as, as part of uh, the government and be integrated as part of the government or the political uh, structure. But the way that the Taliban are not right now, and then the way they have behaved, the policies that they have issued for the last two years, I don't think that they are making any effort to be recognized. And I've, um, not that I'm an Afghan and, and the Taliban's policies are impacting my lives. but almost all their policies are against the UN's laws and rules and regulations. And I don't see a ground for the UN to recognize them, unless mm. UN would make an exceptional um, decision. And trust me, the Taliban are going to be another, I would say, a regime like Iran that that the world would have to suffer its presence, its existence, and the diplomatic power that would give the UN's recognition to them.
0: If you compare the situation Taliban rule of prior to 2001 with uh, the last two years, would you say that we might see in the next months or years a a sort of resistance or even uprising led by women like we saw in Iran over the last 12 months? Do you think that is a possibility?
1: The uprising in terms of the women's voices in Iran is, I mean, these are very two different contexts. Afghanistan has never had the experience, the successful experience of a political change through civic movement. So that is more than sufficient for people to be discouraged. But the people who are going on the street, it just means that even though they know that they might not succeed in that, but they're still making a struggle, making an effort. So the, if we go with the numbers, I don't think Afghanistan would ever, at least in the next couple of years, would ever be able to reach that number, um, to go on the streets and to protest. But. In terms of how consistent it is, I think it's stronger than what it is in Iran.
0: Mm. Iranians
1: outside Iran, they're still uh, still um, making an effort, but Iranians inside Iran, compared to the number that used to go on the streets, it has died down. But in Afghanistan, yes, the number is not never gonna reach to that number, I mean, to the number that you could see in Iran, like uh, the number that could really be seen but the struggle is consistent. I don't see anything that anything has changed on the women's side inside Afghanistan uh, since 2021. They still make an effort. They find their ways as much as they're suppressed. They're making, making an effort to, uh, to be heard. They're making an effort to find new innovative ways to uh, express themselves.
0: As an Afghan woman who lives outside of Afghanistan right now, What would be your message to the European Union's decision makers, to the politicians, especially in Europe? How can they help women, girls inside Afghanistan, practically speaking?
1: What I always believe is we need to, in order to be able to keep the force on the ground for the long-term objectives, we need to make sure that in short term, we help them survive. And part of that survival mechanism, of course, one of that is education. So supporting the online education in Afghanistan um, is one of the, um, I think best mechanisms to keep the Afghan women, continue with their struggles to, uh, to be heard, to be seen, to, um, to ask for their rights from the Taliban. It's empowering them to be uh, their own voices. So education is one thing. The, the other aspect of it is even though the media in Afghanistan is not free media anymore, The Taliban are controlling the entire media outlets. Plus, uh, the media outlets that could not align themselves with the Taliban, they are no longer having a footprint in Afghanistan. But the Afghan women have been able to use social media to connect with the rest of the world. So I do believe that giving them the platform to express themselves, giving them the platforms to be, to have it. I mean to not to express themselves but to showcase what the taliban are doing with them and to ask for support from the international community i think that is something that is important and vital right now so the media is another aspect of it um but then when it comes to the resources the eu is engaged already in afghanistan so civil society is one of those umbrellas or larger platforms that we need to that EU uh, needs the EU support or in terms of resources needs EU support to to work with the population at the grassroots level and civil society I think it was one of the it wasn't a perfect civil society but it was um, one of the achievements that Afghanistan had in 20 years so I do believe that there are a couple of institutions and platforms uh, that need to exist there to be able to uh, have people empowered on the ground to be their own voices or, or ask for their rights from the Taliban. So for the, for the long-term, keeping the Taliban and pressurizing them is one way. The other way is that the Taliban are not just a group of insurgent, which is a ruler now. They also have a group of criminal network that they have had it for the last uh, 20 years or more than that, of course, when they have been the ruler in their previous regime as well. So for me, if, even if they're, they're pressurizing the Taliban the way that it, they're being pressurized, I don't think that's uh, sufficient. I'm happy that it's happening, but I don't think that's sufficient. So targeting their, the criminal network that is, that is funding them financially or investing on their business, I think that also matters. A good example was the, um, Qatar's uh, construction of the football studio, right? Where the Taliban's um, contractors actually invested in terms of the construction uh, heavy equipment. So for me, I think if if, uh, the international community and here's the EU's role, really wants to play a role is not to just target the Taliban, to target their backbones as well. The sanctions that we are talking on the Taliban, that is not sufficient. The sanction is only not providing money directly to the Taliban, but then allowing their uh, criminal network to invest all over the region. So I do believe that there are, In terms of pressurizing the Taliban for the midterm and long term, I mean, for the midterm and long term uh, outcomes, uh, the sanction has to be extended, has to be expanded in terms of its scope, like who um, is going to be targeted by that sanction. Uh, The means to pressurize the Taliban, that is again one of the means that can pressurize the Taliban, has to be beyond just the very traditional uh, diplomatic means. But then in the short term, the Afghan women, the children and the men who want to be free, who raising their voices for freedom, for education, for justice, for democracy, they need to be supported by all means, be it through providing them a platform, be it through providing them the minimum means that they need to, uh, to sustain their struggle.
0: Are you hopeful for the future of Afghanistan? So if you look 20 years ahead instead of 20 years back absolutely
1: i am very hopeful even when the taliban took over afghanistan the power in afghanistan yes we all have been grieving it was a moment that i mean we can hardly forget how painful that moment was but what we had in 2021 we had fought for it in 20 for 20 years we all had lost our loved ones in battlefields and suicide I mean, they have been even targeted just going back to their hometowns by the Taliban on the way back to their homes from Kabul, for example, or any other major city. Um, Yes, it was painful, very painful. We can hardly forget that. I mean, we can never forget that actually. But the first thing that came to mind that, that used to come to our minds is, how long the Taliban could survive last time? It wasn't that long, actually. It didn't even take a generation of us so they're not gonna survive this time as well. They're not gonna survive that long. I mean, I I mean I'm very hopeful that I would be alive and I would see them gone. Either gone or either or be open to establish a more inclusive government. And I would love to see that. I would love to see a government where the Taliban is part of, but not the entire government. So yes, part of it is because that hope is giving us the morale or the incentive to to struggle to be there, to, to make an effort to change, to bring a political change, but at the same time to help with the with situation, I mean, to do whatever we can within our own capacities. I mean, we the Afghans outside Afghanistan, within our own capacities to help the people inside Afghanistan in short term, but then at the same time to struggle for the ultimate political change at some point in time. Part of it is um, that hope is helping us to move on, to keep, keep going. But at the same time, I mean, just looking at the past, the Taliban are not going to be able to, maybe it. I mean, this, this round, they have already been there for, for two years. Maybe it might be longer than their previous um, uh, regime, but I I don't believe that they're going to be there for a generation, like many other dictatorship regimes in the world. They, they may not be able to survive because Afghanistan is, again, even way too complex for the Taliban to swallow in terms of the what the people want. I mean, when they um came to power, they claim that they're representing the rural population, which is three-fourths of the population. But they clearly, of course, are not. I mean, I used to be part of that rural population. Um, yes, the people are have adopted a survivor's mentality where they're like, okay, don't kill me. Um, I'm not going to raise my voice in some parts of Afghanistan only. But it doesn't mean that they would accept the Taliban. If they would have the, the platform either to express themselves or fight with the Taliban at some point in time, they would. And just because there's not a strong alternative to the Taliban, that's also why people are very undecided. But otherwise, they either have to change themselves or they would be gone when I'm alive. And I'm very, very, very hopeful about it. And that hope brings a smile on my face.
0: On that positive note, let me thank you very much, Rosna, for talking to us on this podcast. And let's hope the best for the future of Afghanistan. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much, Michael.